Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is John Harris, who joins me to discuss his involvement in the Beatles Get Back book. John Harris is a renowned journalist, writer and critic who currently writes for The Guardian. His book on Britpop, The Last Party, is one of my favourite music books ever. The Get Back book is, believe it or not, only the third ever official Beatles book after Hunter Davies and the Anthology. It's made up of beautiful pictures and fascinating transcripts from these sessions, which John selected and edited alongside writing introductions for each chapter of the book. John Harris, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. About as okay as anyone else is at the moment, I suppose. Let's forget about everything else and let's go back to January 1969 and lose ourselves there for the next uh, half an hour or so. Um, So we're here to talk about uh, your role in the Get Back book, uh, which is released, obviously, to time with the forthcoming uh, Get Back film on Disney+. Plus. Just to start off with, how did you get involved in this project? I wrote um, an essay that was included in the super deluxe edition of the White Album, which came out in 2018. So I was really thrilled and amazed that I was asked to do that. And then in the wake of that, really, Apple got in touch with me, a fellow called Jonathan Clyde, who, who is the sort of uh, head of Apple in the UK. He got in touch with me. And the subject line on the email, I remember, said the Beatles in Middle Earth or something. There was some sort of, oh, what's that, you know? And explained this project that was coming together at that point, the sort of chief focus of which was what they thought at that time was a single film that would be uh, created from all the rushes by Peter Jackson. And there were other elements to it, you know, one of which was the audio and side of things, you know, remix and new music and all that. And then going back to the original Let It Be album, now exactly where had access to this, I'm not sure territories wise, but certainly in the UK with the initial pressings of Let It Be back in 1970, there was a book. And with the book were transcripts edited transcripts of what had been recorded on these two Nagra tape recorders. Quite a lot of stuff, but not on the scale that we've just done it. And I think that was sort of in Apple's minds, like, well, that's a good, you know, can we go back to that idea and develop it somehow? And they explained that they had all of these transcripts. The really, really hard yards had been done by this amazing team of transcribers who'd just meticulously gone through 120 hours of audio. And we had a series of conversations about what could be done as regards sort of editing it, editing it down and turning it into a book. And those conversations quite quickly sort of arrived at the idea of a, of a three-act play, like a real-life play. Then it was sort of, well, here it is, you know, go off and have a go, you know. And um, I would be supplied <laughs> very regularly. Your listeners won't see this, but you will. With these spiral-bound transcripts right i get hard copies in the mail and then copies on word for me to work off and then also i had access to all the recorded audio like 120 hours of it you know to listen to people's tone of voice or when people were talking over each other when particular songs came in so it was a sort of mixture of reading and listening and editing and all of that and i don't know that i don't know i'm not sure how long that took (laughs) quite a long time 
did you have any reservations about undertaking her? Uh, no, a none whatsoever. I had no reservations whatsoever. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, a bit similar to when I was asked to write this essay for the White Album, you know. Of course, you know, people, uh, the, Apple said, are you interested in doing this? But it seemed like a sort of a completely superfluous question. <laughs> like, are you kidding? <laughs> when do I start kind of thing? And I had no hesitation at all if they'd have told me there was 240 hours and 50 spiral bound volumes, the more the merrier, really. Because the idea that, you know, it was work, right? But I would, I would come up to this room that I'm talking to you from here every day for a period and, you know, put on my headphones and open these books and have a look at these word documents and there it all was you know in such amazing detail i, I just knew straight away what an amazing thing to do you know hmm. not why i sound smug about it at all because i'm still sort of absolutely amazed and and thrilled that i did it and i was asked to do it you know that's an, it was just an incredible privilege an incredible thing to do and then you know we'll probably talk about this in due course but the sort of amazingness of it in fits and starts it would increase you know particularly when I, I then took delivery of an iPad, which had all the rushes on it. So what Peter Jackson was, there was sort of raw material Peter Jackson was working on, which again was used to check against the drafts of what was starting to be written, but it's like a magic box, that, <laughs> you know, 50 odd hours of, of, of just stuff I'd never, ever seen, you know, certainly not restored to that extent. So the mm -hmm. whole experience has been magical really. That's good to hear, John. Uh, what was your relationship with the film and the Let It Be album before this project? So, by pure accident, Let It Be was the first Beatles album I ever owned because I was a sort of strange kid. I um, When I was nine I had a, or thereabouts, I had, I had my own little Beatles fanzine that I used to hand out to my schoolmates who probably had no interest in it whatsoever. And from the local library in the days when you could borrow vinyl records from the library for 25p for a fortnight, I'd started borrowing and probably home taping um, Beatles albums. But the first record I owned by them was after two weeks on holidaying on the North Yorkshire Moors and on the coast in a record shop in Whitby, the Yorkshire town, which isn't there anymore. Whitby's still there, the shop isn't there. <laughs> I bought Let It Be. I think because I'd seen it on TV. There was um, a series... Um, this is going fast back so far. Seven, in 1979, 1980, I think before John Lennon was killed, there was a series um, at Christmas on BBC Two called The Beatles at Christmas, where starting on the Friday, the school break broke up, and then every couple of days they'd show a Beatles film. Which in, in the days before YouTube, can you imagine how amazing that was? You know, and I'd seen Let It Be. Let It Be, I think, was the final one towards sort of New Year's Eve, and I think that's why I bought Let It Be. So I bought the. That was the first Beatles album I bought. I Dig a Pygmy by Charles Hawtrey and the Death Aids. So I was very acquainted with that record. And then it was on TV again, subsequently, and we didn't have a video recorder. I'm an old person, right? We didn't have a video recorder. I taped it on an audio cassette. I just put a tape recorder next to the TV and then listened to the, listened to the audio of the film for like a year afterwards so I, can I could recite all of it, you know. Very well acquainted with all that. Uh, I now know this. I didn't know this at the time, but the, but the film was withdrawn from being shown on TV. And then sooner or later, I think when I was in my 20s, I bought a bootleg VHS of it from Portobello Market or Camden Market, one or the other in London, and watched this sort of third or fourth generation version of it. So I was very acquainted 
with that period. And also, I own the odd bootleg. When Let It Be Naked came out in 2002, I think I wrote something for Rolling Stone magazine, which necessitated me going to this record shop in, in New York. In the, when I, I mean, I didn't fly over there to do this. I happened to be in New York. But um, I bought a couple of the CD bootlegs where you can, you know, you for like 20 bucks or something, you could get two hours of the Beatles conversation. Mm. So all told, I was fairly acquainted with it. But the, I think the bigger point to make is that I was as sort of convinced of the sort of received version of this period, which was that it was thoroughly unproductive and fairly miserable and all the rest of it. And I think I probably, on balance, I believe that. Notwithstanding how great a lot of the music is, the songs are from this period, but by and large, I sort of, that was my view of it. Because that's all you read, right? I mean, every time you pick up a Beatles book, it says, oh, these thoroughly miserable sessions where for want of anything better to do, they endlessly jammed rock and roll covers and then George walked out and all that, you know? So that was my sort of understanding of it, which in the course of this experience has been substantially changed through getting acquainted with what actually went on. So let's talk a little bit about what you what you watched and what you heard and what went yeah. into the book. Was there was there a, a moment, a series of moments? What was the biggest surprise that you kind of came across while you're working on this? I have to caveat this answer slightly. The point is that contrary to some things you might have read or people might have read, hmm. it's not like the reverse of what you've heard is true, the absolute reverse, right? So it's like up to now, oh, it's totally miserable. And now we discover it was just all brilliant and an absolute joy. There are moments of tension, periods of moments of tension within it, which the, the films are very honest about. Equally, you know, when people read the book, they'll see that. And that's not something one imposes on the narrative, you know, but the Beatles themselves talk about the prospect of breaking up, right? So it's there. It's in, and it's in the foreground. The point is that the reality is much more sort of nuanced and complicated than this age-old idea of it all being utterly miserable and awful. It's much more complicated. And by and large, they get on really well. They're still collaborating. And music is pouring out of them. It's pouring out of Paul and George in particular. And some of that is incredible, you know. So you hear... Paul playing the backseat in my car and every night and, you know, later solo things. Another day, I think he plays at one stage and you hear George play All Things Must Pass, obviously. Um, Let It Down, I think, is played. John plays Give Me Some Truth. You know, there are th and then a lot of Abbey Road you hear taking shape. You know, I'd never heard before the moment when Paul comes in and he's talking about having started to write Carry That Weight. And I always thought Carry That Weight was this song that was deliberately about the end of the Beatles. And it's not. Mm. It's a sort of knockabout country number in which the principal character has to carry a weight you know so all of these things a it was just consistently incredible how much music was pouring out of them and what a high quality of music it was and then b the frequent moments when either the conversation or something they do which is funny happens that that sort of underlines the fact that this was a lot more of a, a sort of open upbeat good mood sort of time for the most part so when i heard them singing paul leads them in this version of get back where he sings it in schoolboy german it's pretty good schoolboy german you know. get house in dynam house and all this i was just on the floor laughing you know quite a lot of that and then you know you sort of discover their some of the sort of details of their lives which are, which i'm going to say to you now and they might sound quite mundane but it's good fun here in the beatles talk about what they're going to have for lunch right or george moaning about 
speed cameras. I think they were called speed radar in those days. Or what they saw. There's a lot of talk about what they saw on telly the previous night and all mm. this stuff. You know. And it sort of reveals who they are in some way. It's not, you know, I always had this idea of the Rolling Stones, for example, that they live in castles and they get up at <laughs> six in the evening and go to bed at six in the morning and all this stuff, you know. And the Beatles' lives, the Beatles aren't like that. The Beatles watch TV and read the newspapers and, you know, they, they const constantly have sort of one foot in the same world as everyone else, which means that you get a very vivid sense of the time. So I'm sort of rambling it. So what I'm saying is that every... You know, every unit, whatever that was, 15, 20 minutes of recording. There's always something fascinating there. There's a bit where George is somewhat almost livid, I would say, that there's some car washing, Paul's car's being washed in the in the car park and and, and George's is, is, is not being washed. And just that, that you're right, that kind of exchange of words about these really small mundane things or as you say like they talk about the cream concert don't they because the cream concert yeah. was on on yeah. tv that night so they'd all watched they were such music fans obviously and they'd all watch that and then they would come in and and discuss that I think that's the it's probably the only real window that we get into that part of their lives over the course of the 10 years there's nothing else that goes into that amount of detail of the recordings that we have so I think it it's quite a it's quite an important kind of audio archive of, of what they were like as people, isn't it? Totally, totally. I mean, it's sort of unprecedented um, as far as any group's concerned. I mean, there's that Rolling Stones film, One Plus One, where they, oh, it, what, that's now called Sympathy for the Devil, which Jean-Luc Godard directed, which isn't bad it, as a sort of intimate-ish glimpse of the stuff, but there's nothing like this. No. As you say, you find out, you know, you find out what books they read, the people they admire, the music they like. And then you can start to sort of draw dots. So there's a bit where John talks about how much he likes Fleetwood Mac and he's seen them on TV. And I think he talks about them playing Albatross. And obviously that, ah, right, okay, well, that's where Sun King comes from and all that. You sort of feel that all the time. And also it makes you realise things about the music at that time. I'd never really thought of um, about songs from Let It Be, some of them anyway, or a lot of them actually, as having this sort of quite pronounced soul and R&B uh, influence, which, which isn't there in the White Album so much, a bit on Savoy Truffle maybe or something like that, but mm. it's really foregrounded on this. And that's partly because Billy Preston's there, but it's also, you hear him talking about Aretha Franklin and Arthur Conley and um, Ray Charles, you know, and so you think, oh yeah, you know, and there's a moment where George takes delivery of this big stack of Smokey Robinson LPs. And that, that's sort of the source for them, you know, as much as sort of rhythm and blues, soul music is really, really, I mean, we kind of know that, but it really is brought to the surface by the fact they talk about it. Mm. So in all respects, musically, personally, and all that, it gives you an amazing sense of who they were and what they were all about. Was there a noticeable change in atmosphere, conversations from the Twickenham half to the Savile Row kind of half of the, the time? Hugely so. I've just been at Twickenham Studios where the studio they did it in is pretty much as was. When you step into that space, it's like where they keep all the the, um, the ancient artefacts in those Indiana Jones films. It's like this vast room, right? And it's really weird because it's all um, dampened sound-wise. So it's this vast space, like a, you know, like 10 school gym, but there's no echo because it's all, it's really odd place you now. And you think, God, it must be weird being here. If you look at the, the call sheets, they're meant to be on set at 10 a.m. I mean, no one is, right? But that's the, 
even that compared to their sort of nocturnal way of working at Abbey Road, it's quite a shock to the system. And it's disorientating. And also hanging over them is this um, this big question of where they're going to play this live show. So there's a lot of stuff sort of swirling around. Yeah, Twickenham is not an ideal place to be working. And they get to Apple and there's an upswing. There's a real clear upswing. And they talk about how much they like it there. They say, this is a great place, isn't it? And mm. I really like it here. And then other people around them, George Martin and Glenn John, start to talk about how much the mood has been transformed and all that. So there is a huge shift. So let's talk a little bit about individuals over the course of the, the month there. And we, we should start with John. I mean, again, the slight cliche is that he's with John. He doesn't bring a huge amount musically to the sessions. What kind of mood do we find John in over the course of this month? So um, at Twickenham, he's quite quiet and withdrawn, noticeably so. Not all the time, but isn't really as vocal as some of the others about what they're doing and where it's meant to be going. And um, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's proof really of the fact that Apple is a much more relaxed, sort of harmonious place to be, that Apple, he's just in the midst of everything and musically he's there but also talking about what they're doing and, and where it might end up and all that he's really really vocal so you know i think it's hard to gauge really mm. to break down their sort of quite adverse reaction to being in twickenham and how it falls with each member but i don't think any of them really like being there but paul of the four paul has the most sort of well here we are this is what we've got to do so let's get on with it sort of attitude and i think the other three are quite sort of whoa, this is quite difficult. Mm. It is. It's really, really hard. I mean, you know, if you read those books about the recording sessions at Abbey Road, by this point, they wouldn't start work until two or three in the afternoon at the earliest. So the idea of being on set, and the other thing is Twickenham is a, didn't really hit me till I went there. It's, um, it's a long way out of town. It's a sort of very suburban environment. I don't know. There was a canteen. There is a canteen at the film studios, but creature comfort wise and all that, it's not really happening. And, all of those things mean that John is very sort of disorientated by it. Whereas Paul has, has, has more of a, well, here we are, we might as well get on with it kind of actually. Does he come, I mean, again, an, another cliche is Paul as slightly bossy over, over this period, but frustrated with the three of them at any point or? No, no he's really, the point about Paul um, among many here is that it's a difficult job trying to orientate these four individuals in the same direction. It requires a lot of diplomacy and a lot of emotional sensitivity. And he, he really has those qualities. You know, you sort of learn a lot about him at this time and probably him in general by watching and listening to what goes on and reading about what goes on here. Because it's, it's quite a gig, you know. They haven't got a manager anymore. So someone in this very sort of um, delicate, emotionally aware way has to sort of say, well, here we are, can we try it like this? How about like that? And all that. And then also, when they get to the point of talking about their future and the prospect of them splitting up and stuff, and some quite difficult things, you know, like the fact that Yoko is now at John's side all the time and all the rest of it. The last thing he is, contrary to stereotype, is bossy. That's just not an appropriate word at all. It's not like that. He's very, very attentive to everybody's sensitivities and, and what it takes to get the, to, to get the best out of them. And also there's an emotional aspect to it for him, I think, which is that it feels like he's the one who, who's, of all of them, who's, who's most sort of aware 
that perhaps the band might break up soon. And and his response to that inevitably is really, really emotional. And that's that's hell of a thing to see. This is all history now, but you watch it and there are aspects of it that are really moving. Mm. Uh, George, in the anthology, famously <laughs> call, calls it the winter of discontent. He obviously had just come back from spending time with Dylan and the band. And as we both know, a cold English January morning must have been maybe a bit harder for George, having just come from that environment. Um, and he, he does exit the, the stage quite literally on January the 10th. What can you tell us about George's kind of mood and movements over this month? Well, so the first point is, on the whole, he's not as sort of against it and as, as detached from it and all that, again, as myth would suggest, right? So he's bringing lots of songs to the sessions, and certainly when they're in Apple, you see George smile a lot and all that. So the cartoon doesn't quite fit, right? When I interviewed Peter Jackson, he said for Mojo Magazine, he said that George reminded him somewhat of this stereotypical New Zealand male. who, When you say, you know, why don't we go on a great adventure? We'll say, well, are you sure about this? Have you got enough stuff? You know, is your rucksack big enough? Quite practical, grounded sort of questions and sort of by nature sceptical. And there's a lot of that. So when they talk about playing um, the concert in North Africa, in Libya, in this Roman amphitheatre, and at one point it's mooted that they should charter an ocean liner and all their fans should go on it. And they say, where are we going to get ship from? And John Lennon says, well, P&O would give us one for nothing. And George says, we can't even get free Fender amps. And you can't really argue with that. Someone has to be there saying, are you sure? Where's the, where's the money coming from? Have we got, can we really do that in two weeks' time? So he's that sort of voice. But when, you know, there are, that isn't to say that he's sort of um, taciturn and, and not an active participant. Because, again, the reverse is true. There's a brilliant bit in it where he walks in in the morning and he's just written Old Brown Shoe. And he goes, oh, I had, I had this brilliant song last night and has carried on doing it. I think it's good, this. And he sits and, and plays it. So um, it's they're all complicated. They're really complicated people, like most of us are, you know. And, um, mm. and their relationships are complicated. When I interviewed Paul McCartney about this, there were a couple of occasions when he compared the Beatles to a family, and it is like that, you know. It's as complicated as a family is. Probably more so, because within it all is what he got these questions about creativity. It's not just getting the kids off to school in the morning. and Is there enough petrol in the car? You know, it's like, have we got enough songs? So, it's, so all of it's really, really complicated. It's interesting, when George says that in the anthology in the mid-'90s, it's almost like he's remembering what he's read about it as much as they sort of bought that yeah, myth yeah. a little bit, um, yeah, possibly. Yeah. And finally, Ringo, a word on Ringo. I mean, well, there's loads of things, there's loads of things to say about Ringo. So the first one is his, his personal style sartorially is just amazing. He's the best dressed. He looks great. I think this is the period of, of Ringo's time in the Beatles, if not his entire career, where his, his look is at its absolute peak. Because it's interesting, isn't it? They don't have to turn up looking smart every day. I mean, John doesn't, you know, and Paul, they look, they dress quite casually, but Ringo's usually got a lovely Mr. Fish. I, think, I assume they're Mr. Fish shirt on, you know, and, and he's got this, his moustache is brilliant and he's really beautifully turned out. It's often missed about Ringo Starr in this period. What an amazing dresser he was. Also, hearing, watching his drumming, I mean, as, how anybody thought that Ringo Starr wasn't an amazing drummer always escapes me, but it, that really hits you like a hammer here. But again, you know, to go back to the Twickenham thing, 
I don't think he much likes really that the regime at Twickenham. He he again is quite sort of transformed by arriving at Savile Row. I mean, he plays great and all that, but um, he looks a bit cheesed off from time to time about being at Twickenham. And then also the, the subplot with Ringo is that he's about to start the Magic Christian with Peter Sellers. As much as all of their lives, in addition to being Beatles, are sort of moving in interesting directions, it's easy to forget that applies to Ringo as well, right? So whatever they're experiencing collectively is reflected in Ringo's individual experience. Mm. He's anything but a bystander. He's centrally involved in all of these questions. Doesn't Sellers appear at one point? Yeah, yeah. So um, that's in the book. Is when George temporarily walks out and they they keep going back to Twickenham. And there are, I mean, this has been on YouTube for years and stuff. But um, Peter Sellers turns up because he's he's there to sort of begin scoping out the Magic Christian and what it's all about. Mm. And it's quite funny. And that you know, there are the Beatles with Peter Sellers. You know, it's just a, it's a lovely moment. It's a bit like in the if anyone listening did um did Macbeth which was the Shakespeare play I did for my old life. Now, mostly, we're not talking about a story here in which anyone gets killed and, you know, there are three witches and things. We're not talking about quite those levels of Shakespearean drama. But um, in Macbeth, there's a bit of light relief, the porter scene, all that, you know, which is sort of played for laughs. And and by, by complete accident, in the part of the book where George leaves and the conversations get quite sort of heavy and involved, Peter Sellers turns up. And it just worked as a little digression from the central question, which is how is this going to end? What's going to happen to the show? Are the Beatles really going to break up? All of that stuff. Peter Sellers arrives and it's a lovely moment of light relief. There's also um, in the same bit, Paul and John do this sort of mock chat show, really playing the parts of parody Beatles. And that's the, that's the moment of light relief, which again was one of the things that convinced me that this was a play. So felt as if they were in a play, they were anyway. So just to conclude, John, let's talk a little bit about, that horrible word legacy i've been thinking obviously a lot about this this month what do you think the legacy of this this month will be in their kind of arc over their career do you think wow. this was do you think that this was the the start of the the end or do you think this was a, the last great kind of gasp i think what this brings home this whole project brings home is that up to now i think again this goes back to received opinion the idea has been that, that there's this period where they're in Twickenham and Savile Row and some of the music's great and all that and the rooftop's brilliant but that sort of all hits the wall in some way and then they resolve to make this final great album which is Abbey Road right and the two things are completely distinct right and um, they're not distinct at all one blurs into the other so I think I'm right in saying that the majority certainly a very large part of the, of the material for Abbey Road is all worked on in this period. So you hear something and Maxwell's Silver Hammer and Octopus's Garden and I Want You She's So Heavy. A lot of it. And what that brings home, if you throw in that sequence I talked about a moment ago when George walks in and he's just written an old brown shoe and all that, is that what this is actually is it's a pretty amazing burst of creativity. And in, in the case of the Let It Be Stroke Get Back thing, it happens in a very short space of time. I mean, notwithstanding the tensions and all the rest of it, it's still a pretty amazing feat to work up at least seven or eight songs in the course of, what, two and a half, three weeks. So it's a very concentrated burst of creativity, but 69 itself, you know, they go out with a bang. There's absolutely no question. There's no sort of dwindling away. A lot of bands, you know, of course, you know, a lot of groups, lesser groups, 
you know, it gradually fades out, you know, and you get one lousy record after another until they finally throw it in, you know. Some groups have been doing it, you know, been putting out lousy records for decades, you know, but doesn't happen here. It's really great till the end, which is another sign of, of what an amazing thing the Beatles were. And I understand it in that context, really. It's this amazing late flowering, really. 69 is a pretty good Beatles year when you sort of look back on it. I mean, it's, it, you know, it starts off somewhat shakily and there's a, there's a moment of, of tension early on, but they find their feet again. And I suppose proof of that falls two ways, really. I think Abbey Road is a large part of the proof of that, which is, I, to my mind, it's a sort of magnificent record. But then also we haven't, what we haven't talked about is the roof. And um, they're great on the roof. It's brilliant. And it's a really, considering that it was a sort of compromise, you know, it was like some sort of performance and it wasn't this great spectacular performance. It was nonetheless pretty spectacular, you know, and they brought that part of the West End to a standstill and did this amazing thing. And um, again, you know, I suppose we're so familiar with the roof. I hadn't really thought about it for years and years and years. And then concentrating on it again and thinking, well, what's going on here? And how great is this? You know, you know, I suppose it could have gone wrong. You know? But the fact that the Beatles' last live performance, they're really good. And this amazing drama happens, and there's the Beatles and the Metropolitan Police trying to stop them playing and all that. It's all perfect. Everything aligned correctly. And that, again, that, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, and, again, thinking about this lately, it's as iconic a thing as the Beatles in their Sergeant Pepper uniforms or the mop tops or whatever. Is the Beatles on the roof. Everyone's got a vision of the Beatles on the roof with Billy Preston and how great they are and all that. And so I think... As a final chapter, it's incredible. John Harris, thanks so much for your time. Thank you.